ask you to open your Bibles with me right now to Romans 9. We have been engaged in the series here for about a year in the book of Romans. Periodically, we've taken some breaks, but we're progressively going through the passages here in the book of Romans, and we've landed on chapter 9 right now. And I just like to read this passage for the morning for us um, before Mark Carey comes to present the word. I'm telling the truth in Christ. So this is verse 1. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and an unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Thank you, Mark. And good morning. And good morning to uh, you onlineers there. Glad you are joining us and down in F3 as well. Um, good, to, good to have you folks here. As Lisa and I were uh, reading over our Christmas cards and letters last month, we were reminded again that at age 65, we've reached that, uh, that mysterious age of retirement. Not that I'm going to do that anytime soon, but um, as we were reading these Christmas letters from old high school friends and college friends, it was amazing how many of them had written, you know, like, yippee, we retired this year. And it does it does kind of give you pause to uh, cause to pause a little bit and and reflect um this year 2021 marks the 40th anniversary that i've been involved in pastoral ministry nine years back in a little rural church in nebraska and 31 years here at fellowship bible church and you look back and um i don't want to be overly introspective but you you wonder you know what missed opportunities you know god is so faithful but what missed opportunities were there because of my unfaithfulness? You know, what, what, what opportunities did I squander um, that I missed, an, an open door of opportunity that somewhere and maybe multiple times over a 40-year pastoral ministry that uh, I, I just, just missed? Um, now every, everybody, every human being born in this world is, is uh, born with incredible potential. Because everybody born in this world is born, uh, created in the image of God. Great potential. And everybody who is born again, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've been born again. And every human being that's been born again is uh, born with uh, incredible spiritual potential. Um, as Christians, we are really a privileged people. Second Peter talks about God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have been blessed with Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, you know, the question is, have we, have we taken advantage of the privileged position that we have as followers of Jesus Christ, as born-again people? Last week, we looked at the nation of Israel. And if anybody had uh, privileges 
great opportunities um, to honor God and be used of God. It was the nation of Israel. There's no question about it. And yet, as we saw time and time again, they spurned those privileges. They turned their back on those opportunities to serve God. Israel's history forces us to ask that uh, difficult question, uh, what happened to Israel? I mean, God blessed them amazingly. The only nation on the face of the earth that God ever created, that he bestowed upon them such incredible privileges and, and it was just squandered. Did God make a mistake? Did, did something go wrong? Did, did God finally reach a point where he said, you know, enough's enough. When his son is nailed to the cross and crucified after the Jews had turned him over to the Romans to, to be crucified, was that the final nail in the, in the coffin of, of their special chosenness? There's a whole system of theology out there known as replacement theology that teaches, yes, that's exactly what happened. That uh, 2,000 years ago, um, God said enough, and he replaced Israel with something new, a, a new entity, a, a new people of God called the Church of Jesus Christ. And indeed, something did happen 2,000 years ago, and, and a new entity was raised up, and we looked at that a little bit last week. But, but it does raise the question about the character of God. He gives all these privileges and all these blessings to the nation of Israel. Did he just kind of say, all right, I, I renege all that. I, 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 I withdraw my blessings and my privileges. Does it call into question at all, maybe, the character of God? We looked at Romans chapter 8, where God had said, Paul said about God, nothing shall separate us from his love. Nothing at all, nothing ever created could ever separate us from the love of God. His steadfast, loyal love, which he said he gave Israel throughout the history of the Old Testament, his steadfast, loyal love. But, but is the nation of Israel an exception? Is it true of Israel that nothing separates them from God's love? It's a very sticky question. It's a very difficult question, and it was facing the Apostle Paul in the early church. Uh, he was uh, a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee. He was raised in that tradition. In fact, he even went out persecuting the so-called Christians until he had that Damascus Road encounter, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he became the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, what's he going to do about his own people? What do you do about the Jews? Had Paul abandoned his own people? Had God abandoned his so-called chosen people? Well, Paul will write three chapters in the book of Romans that we are about to embark on, chapters 9, 10, and 11, to address this. 
These are very difficult chapters. In fact, I think these are the three most difficult chapters in the book of Romans, and some would say they're probably the three most difficult chapters in all the Bible. In fact, a lot of times people don't even preach Romans 9, 10, 11. I'm just below intelligence enough that I'm going to do that, but uh, it's a very, very difficult passage. Um, but before we turn to Romans chapter 9 and wade into this, these difficult chapters, I want to back up and just review some earlier things Paul said in Romans, like in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where he said, but for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, ungodliness of men, all. No one is exempt from the wrath of God against sin, against ungodliness, against the suppression of truth. And Paul will say, and that also means the Jewish people. Now take your Bibles and go to chapter 2 for a moment. And we'll look at a few verses over here in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Paul continues that thought of, of the wrath of God. but he points it out in relation to the Jewish people. Verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew, and people who had the name Jew had the mentality that, well, I'm a Jew, I'm therefore part of God's chosen people, chosen nation, therefore I've got my ticket punched to heaven. I bear the name Jew, therefore I have this special relationship with God. Uh, I've got a ticket to heaven. Well, Paul says, if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and boast in God, and verse 18, you know his will and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and, and you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of all truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Bearing the name Jew in the mindset of a Jew meant we are a child of God. We are heaven bound. And then Paul raises this whole issue. Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Look at verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And here Paul says, you want to know what really constitutes a, a, a true Jew? 
it's not the outward things. It's not, it's not the, 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 the rite of circumcision. It's, it's not that you were born into the, a, a Jewish family. A real Jew is a, it's an issue of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God. It's being born again. Eternal salvation is not external. Being a Jew is internal. It's favored by God and what takes place inside. And so what Paul is saying here is, beware, Jewish people. Even you can fall under the wrath of God. Now, Paul repeats this elsewhere. As an example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he wrote some very scathing words for you, brethren, writing to the Thessalonians, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and do not please God and they're contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And then that last little phrase, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Notice that's in the present tense. Wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. The wrath of God is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Guess what? The Jewish people were suppressing the truth. And in their unrighteousness and ungodliness, the wrath of God has been revealed. It has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, no doubt, in Paul's mind, the words of Jesus were, were, were echoing. Words of Jesus like we find in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19. As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and, and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of the visitation. He goes on in chapter 21 and verse 5, he says, and while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned and with these beautiful stones and these votive gifts, he said, as for these things, what you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Judgment was coming. He continued in verse 20, but when the, you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because of these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword, 
and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Woe, Israel. Oh, Jerusalem. Matthew 23, Jesus comes and he, he wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you like a mother hen with her chicks, but you, you were unwilling. And, and so your, your house is being left desolate, he said. You'll not see me again until you say once again, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wrath has come. And it's going to come even in a greater way. The Old Testament is replete with these types of, of warnings of judgment. We studied the book of Isaiah um, a couple of years ago. And just as an example, Isaiah chapter 2. Enter the rock, hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of a man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who's proud and lofty and against everyone who's lifted up that he may be abased. Over and over again in the, in the book of Isaiah, you have these warnings against Israel, against Jerusalem. Judgment was coming. Beware, watch out. It's coming. I, I've mentioned this before, but Paul quotes the Old Testament in the book of Romans a lot. <laughs> and in Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially in these three chapters, I think it's over a dozen times he quotes from the book of Isaiah. There's something about the book of Isaiah and the apostle Paul in the book of Romans. There, there was a real affinity here. Paul knew the book of Isaiah. And as he writes Romans 9, 10, and 11, and really all of the book of Romans, it's overshadowed this, these, these themes that are coming from the book of Isaiah, like this theme of judgment, oh woe, a day of reckoning is coming. Just like Jesus said. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Not one stone is going to be left upon another in this temple. It's going to be torn down. And there's this, this real sense of anguish. It's ever present in the mind of Paul. It must have weighed heavily on the Apostle Paul. But Paul concludes there in chapter 2 of Romans. He enforces them to raise some important questions in the next chapter, chapter 3 of Romans. And he says in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Three questions here. Here's the first one. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Well, verse 2, the answer, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, but what then? Here's the second question. If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Is, is God unfaithful? I mean, it... If judgment's coming and the wrath of God has fallen, and yet God had, had told all these special promises and blessings to Israel, is God unfaithful? No, may it never be, verse 4. Rather, let God be found true, and every man else found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, that God's word will be vindicated which raises a, a third question. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who 
inflicts wrath, is not unjust, is he? The third question is, is God unrighteous? Is there advantage to the Jew? Is God unfaithful? Is he somehow, is his character called into question? Is he unrighteous? Paul raises these three questions, and it won't be until chapter 9 that he'll answer those questions. In chapter 9, 1 through 5, he'll answer the first question, what is the advantage of the Jew? Verses 6 through 13, he's going to answer the second question, is God unfaithful? And 14 through 18, he's going to answer the third question about the character of God. Is there, is there some unrighteousness with God? You see, not only did Paul have a, have a passion for his people, and, and that emerges in the book of Romans, but he also had a passion for the character, for the name of God, upholding the reputation of God. And as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, we'll see these two things come out. His, his agony for his people, his agony for the, for the veracity of God, for the character of God. So take your Bibles and turn with me now to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, Paul's passion, first of all, for his people. Notice the anguish of Paul as he writes there in verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. It's almost like Paul has to defend himself for a moment. I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you abandon your people? You're the, you, you, you go to Corinth. You go to Galatia. You go to Thessalonica. You always go to these Gentile areas. Are you sure you're not anti-Semitic in some form or fashion? I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. You know, my conscience, the Spirit bears witness with me. I, I'm, I'm giving it to you straight. I am in great sorrow and unceasing grief for my countrymen. Anguish. By the way, those two words there in verse 2, sorrow and grief, are two words that you find in the book of Isaiah about the, the righteous person's burden for Israel. And again, I think there's no mistake that Paul uses those two words. They're, they're found in the, in the Greek translation of Isaiah called the Septuagint. And Paul brings them in because like righteous people of old in Isaiah's time, so he too is filled with great sorrow and unceasing grief for his people because judgment was coming. Paul felt deeply for the plight of his fellow Jews. Great intensity of feeling in these words. And it's a prayer. Verse 3, for I could wish... That word, in some of your translations may say it, I, my prayer is, it's the typical word for prayer, I could wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now there's some powerful words. I could wish, I, and, and it's written in a form that, it's a hypothetical situation. He said, I could almost wish, I could, I could almost get myself to the point of, of praying, Lord, that you would, separate me from Christ 
that I could be accursed from Christ. I could be separated. I could be cut off from Christ. I could, I could be anathema. That's what the word is, anathema. Separated, cursed from Christ. Very strong language. It's an amazing statement by Paul. Here's one who just a few verses before was rejoicing in the fact that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And now he's saying, but man, if, if it were at all possible, I know it's not, but if it were all possible, Lord, I, I, I'd be willing to be cursed from Christ for the sake of my, my people, my, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my fellow Jews. Overwhelming sorrow, deep love, but great agony that is in his heart. And this agony of Paul is made all the more painful when he remembers that these were the Jewish people that had been given so many privileges. And Paul outlines now some of those privileges in verse 4 and 5. Ten things just to want to mention in terms of privileges that, that, that Paul says. Look at verse 4. These are, they are Israelites. By the way, that's a little present tense verb. He said, I'm talking about you, Israelite. We, these are, right now, they, we're talking about Israelites, and that little present tense verb is going to govern all the rest of the little phrases that come. Present realities. Nothing's changed. He said, here's the first blessing, the first privilege. You are Israelites. And to be an Israelite meant you were the blessed people. You were the special chosen people. There wasn't another nation on the face of the earth that could claim that title. We're Israelites, meaning we are special before God because we were the only nation that was selected on the face of the earth. No other nation would be called that. We are Israelites. And we have the adoption as sons, a term found only in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul talking about the believing community, the special privilege we have as Christians, but Paul is saying even before that, the Israelites had entered in that, that familial relationship with God. Theirs was the adoption as sons. They had that high and holy position as a national entity, adopted by God. And again, it makes the, the problem of Israel's belief all the more intense, all the more sad. Thirdly, he says, and theirs was the glory. The glory. I'm not sure all what that meant, but you remember the stories of the Old Testament, the children of Israel redeemed out of the land of Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. Or before that, they're, they're, they've got the, the fire uh, by night and the pillar of cloud by day that leads them, the, the, the brightness, the Shekinah glory. And then they build the tabernacle and later the temple, and, and the glory of God comes there on the... the the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, there was the, the throne of God, the very throne of God and, and the glory of God. Moses experienced it when he got the Ten Commandments, his face shone. They had the glory. Yours was the glory. No other nation had the glory. United States of America doesn't have the glory of God. Israel had the glory of God. And yes, that glory departed. Ezekiel 
He saw the vision and the wheel and the wheel in the middle of the air, and the, the glory of God departed. And yet they have this special place, this, this coming glory. Yours is the glory. No other nation has that. They have the covenants, he says. The, the special contracts, the special agreements that God entered into, the, the unilateral agreements, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the special arrangements that God made with only this special people. Only the Jews had that. God didn't speak to other nations that way. They had the law. And in the Old Testament, when that law was given, it is said that all the nations will, will look at these laws, these, these incredible commandments of God that reflect his character, that are an expression of his heart and his will, and it's been deposited to the people of Israel, only the people of Israel. And all the nations will look and say, my, what a great God you have, because look at the law that has been given to you. How blessed you are as a people. You've been graced by God by being given an expression of his heart. No other nation of the world has been exposed to the heart of God like Israel has been exposed to the heart of God through the law. Yours is the law. You've got it. And the promise or the temple services is the next one. The temple services. In the Old Testament, the temple service was provided so that atonement of sins could be made, that, that a holy God could meet with his people. No other nation had that. No other nation in the history of the world has ever had a, a place where almighty holy God would meet with an unholy people and where an atonement of sins would be made. They had the service of the temple. They had the the opportunity to enter into the mercy and grace of God. Ezekiel even speaks of a rebuilding, of a reinstituting of this temple one day. You've got the temple privileges. No other nation, says Paul, and you've got the promises. Old Testament was filled with the promises that God made to his people over and over again. All these promises, God didn't make those promises to any other nation. He made them to Israel. He says, you've got the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You've, the patriarchs are yours. Those are the ones that God personally met with. Those are the ones that God entered into contracts with. Those, those are the ones that God wrestled with, like Jacob, who, who he loved upon. There's no other nation that has... Their founders in that relationship with Almighty God? You've got the fathers. And then he says, you've got the Messiah. God had chosen the nation of Israel through whom the Messiah would come. Jesus Christ is that Messiah. And these privileges of Israel reach this crescendoed um, a peak of, of glory, you got the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent from God. No other nation was given a Messiah. No other nation had Almighty God. And that's the tenth thing. It's a Messiah, no ordinary Messiah. It's the, the one who is God blessed forever. No one else had a Messiah. 
who is none other than God himself. By the way, this is one of the most powerful phrases, verses on the deity of Christ that you'll run across. You've got Messiah, who is God, blessed forever. The climactic privilege of Israel was that their Messiah was none other than God himself, who stepped from the throne of glory into their world to lead them into everlasting righteousness, the anointed one, the one that Isaiah had seen in Isaiah chapter 6. Behold, there was God. The whole temple shook. The foundations shook. His, his robe filled the temple and the smoke and the, and the fire, and they saw him sitting on the throne. Who was that? That was the Messiah. It was Christ, who in chapter 53 of Isaiah become the suffering servant. And he bled and he died for, for them. No other nation has that. United States of America has never had that. No, no nation on the face of the earth ever created by God that has had the privilege that Israel has had. Oh, what a blessing have had the Jews. Oh, what a privileged status that they've had. But as great as the privileges have been, so great will their destruction be. Israel was under the wrath of God even as Paul wrote these words, as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The wrath of God is upon them to the uttermost. And the full brunt of that wrath was soon to fall. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, not one stone is going to be left upon another. Judgment was going to come. That was the mouth of Jesus himself. And furthermore, unless they put their faith in Jesus Christ, the Jewish people will suffer eternal judgment, the ultimate judgment, cast from his presence forever and ever. This is what is on the forefront of Paul's mind as he begins to write Romans 9, 10, 11. End of chapter 9, he writes words, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Be why? Because they did not seek it by faith. But as it were, by works of the law, they've stumbled at that stumbling stone. And the grief in Paul's heart is just overwhelming. That was the cry of his heart. It was God... Are you going to curse your people? The thought of the Jewish people coming under the wrath of God and then one day being eternally separated from him was really almost more than Paul could bear. I am in deep sorrow, unceasing grief. And, and this emotion of Paul, I don't want us to miss. As we study Romans 9, 10, 11, this, is, this has to govern all what, we're, all what we're going to study in these next three chapters. Paul writes these chapters with tears, I think, streaming down his face, maybe blotting the parchment as he writes. He's in deep sorrow. 
the thought of his people coming under God's wrath. But as difficult as it was for the Apostle Paul to consider the, and the contemplation of his people coming under the wrath of God, even more than that, it was, it was that his God, his Lord, the name of his God was being besmirched. Is God unfaithful? Where is God in this? I thought he loved the Jewish people with an everlasting love. Is there unrighteousness with God? God's character, God's reputation was at stake. What kind of a God would bless a nation so extravagantly with covenants and, and the fathers and the temple service and, and the Messiah and then bring wrath and judgment upon his chosen people? It's a question that we'll pick up with next week because if you look at verse 6, he quickly adds, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. All right, Paul, you got it teed up now. You got to drive this one home because it sure looks like the word of God has failed. We'll delve into that starting next week. Three things I just want to bring out as we wrap up this morning. Three applications. First of all, boy, religion is dangerous. How dangerous is religion? No more religious people than the Jewish people. They had all of this. The Jews were extremely religious and that they too had fallen under the wrath of God. I've said here many times in the past, but it bears repeating. A person can never be too bad to get to heaven, but you might be too good. A person can never be too bad to get to heaven, but a person might be so good, so squeaky clean, so religious, and so content and so proud of their, their religiosity that it blocks them from understanding they are a sinner in need of a Savior. How easy it is to be lulled into a false sense of security through religious practices. You might be here this morning and maybe for the first time you've been shaken by this thought of, well, I, but I'm, I'm here, I'm, you know, I, I've been giving my time and talents and resources to God and church and I mean surely he's going to take all those things I've done and at the end of time he's going to put it on his great grand scales and he's going to weigh it right and and I, I, I'm certain I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm no I'm, I'm real sure that my good is going to outweigh my bad and he'll welcome me into his presence and we know from the Bible, from the book of Romans, it doesn't work that way, does it? But religion can, the opiate of the soul, I mean, it can, it can lull us into sleep that, yeah, I, I've been pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty religious. Second thing I want to mention is how hard-hearted we can become about those who are lost, spiritually dark. And a a probing question is, does our heart break like the Apostle Paul's heart breaks? 
broke for this lost Jewish people? Does our heart break for those who will spend a Christless eternity in hell? You know, Jesus, Jesus spoke about hell more than anybody else in the, in the New Testament. Matthew 10, 28, he said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul, but fear him who can cast both, destroy both body and soul in hell. It was, it was present on Jesus' mind. Does your heart break for those who are lost? I don't know, maybe, maybe we've been... Maybe we've been so separated from the lost world. You know, you know they say that you, you become a Christian and within two years, you don't know any non-Christians hardly anymore. I mean, all your relationships are believers. We, uh, all our friends are the church friends and we're on all these Bible studies and, uh, you know, oh, good, I, I got it. My boss is a, is a Christian. Oh, I work with Christians. Oh, yeah. Well, that's nice, but what about all the lost people? Does your heart break? What are you doing having a job with Christians? I mean, I, here I am. I, had, I talked with someone the other night who said um, it was a membership class we did yesterday. And uh, we were talking about it. A former pastor who quit the ministry so that he can be involved in what he called frontline ministry. He felt the call to be involved in frontline ministry. He's exactly right. You know, I do rear echelon work, I, I supply the troops. But God calls us all to frontline ministry. Well, we can't do that if our heart doesn't break for, for lost people. Maybe we just have separated ourselves, isolated ourselves from the lost. Maybe, maybe we just can't really believe that God would send anybody to hell. I mean, it's kind of like, well, we'll all get there somehow. God will work it out. Paul was concerned about his countrymen, my fellow Jews, he said. Are we burdened for the souls of our fellow countrymen of what's going on right now in the United States of America? Does our heart grieve for lost people in this country? How does God want us to take the gospel into a, a dark world that seems to be marked increasingly by that racism and bigotry? How does God want us to take the, the lost to the lost world of the, of the woke culture, the, the good news of Jesus? How, how do we take the good news of the gospel to the cancel culture that we can so quickly despise? How, how, do, we, how do we penetrate the far left and the far right with the good news of Jesus? If, you, if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what it's all about. We were listening, Lisa and I were listening last night as we were coming to church to um, a little podcast and the guy on the podcast was talking about um, he, had, he had written something about um, praying for uh, our new administration and praying for, and the comments he was getting were heartbreaking. We will never pray for satanic people. We will never pray for children of the devil. Where's that in the Bible? People need Jesus. There's a heaven and there's a hell. That's all. That's the only option. And you get to heaven by trusting Jesus. This world is doomed. And ever increasingly, this country is doomed. On this Right to Life weekend, we, yes, we must not forget that, what, 63, 65 million children have been butchered in the last 
48 years, hundreds of thousands this year alone. And it's people that are doing that. It's people who need to know Jesus. That's why we're so grateful for a ministry like Abacare. We might not impact the, the, the Washington, D.C. crowd with this new administration, the new or the potential health and human services um, head, uh, Javier Basara, is one of the most aggressively pro-abortion guys that will ever take that office. But he needs Jesus. Of course we need to pray for these people. Like never before, these are times that we need to step up and we need to engage our community with grace and, and love and, and truth. And I just want to mention real quickly, there's a, a great little um, resource that Randy Elkhorn just put out called Pro-Choice or Pro-Life. You can go online, Amazon, and it's 99 cents on Kindle. If you've got a Kindle, just download it. 99 cents. And it provides some nice, compact little um, statements that you can engage people with. We, we are called to be salt and light to a, a broken world. We'll never do that if our heart doesn't break. For people are heading for hell. Third thing I want to mention real quickly is that Paul's prayer in verse 3, I could almost wish, I, I pray that I could be separated a curse from Christ. That prayer is an unanswerable prayer. No man can become a curse to save someone else from the flames of hell. No one can do that. Except one person. The person who stepped from his throne in glory and came to this earth. And according to Galatians 3.13, he became a curse for us that we wouldn't have to be cursed. He redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one person could actually have that prayer answered. And he did it for me and he did it for you. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Have you put your trust in him and him alone for eternal salvation? Have you been on the receiving end of such abundant love that God so loved you, he gave his only begotten son to die for you? God's heart broke for us. A sinful world that he had created so beautifully and so perfectly, gone awry, gone astray because of sin. And so he sent his son to become a curse for us that we could be redeemed from that curse? Have you put your trust in Christ, in Christ alone? And if we have, what a wonderful message to penetrate a dark world. May our heart break for the lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and, and this reminder of from, from this servant of yours, the Apostle Paul, who looked at the, the present doom and the, and the coming doom of his own people. And his heart broke with great sorrow and unceasing grief. 
even if it might have even been possible, which it wasn't, that he could be accursed from Christ for the sake of his people. How instructive, Father, how powerfully instructive for us in the day in which we live. Living in a world that's gone mad, a country that seems to increasingly not just be post-Christian, but anti-Christian. What great opportunities to penetrate this world with your love, with your message of, of hope, of truth. May doors of opportunity, Father, open to us. In the days that we have been given of life on this earth, may we not miss the opportunities. We, a privileged people, to proclaim the goodness of your grace to this world. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.